0: Hey, we're back in our series in Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 5. And you're probably saying like, dude, how long can this guy preach on these five verses? Because the truth is for a very long time. And I feel like there are just, you know, all of scripture is wonderful. And all of it gives us an incredible connection point to God and the people that are around us as far as receiving love and passing it on. But certain teachings like this one that really are almost like incredibly foundational to the faith, they desire a little more, uh, they require a little more attention. So here we have this, this pretty powerful passage that is talking about, I mean literally, the foundation of all relationship, and it roots around what humility and selflessness looks like. And so we've had this great opportunity to explore these ideas as far as who, it is, who, uh, who Jesus is and how he portrays them for us, he embodies them. But today, as you'll see, we're going to jump into the other side of this, and we're going to take some time to talk about some of the challenges that we will have in living a life that values others as ourselves. And that's very important because in in this series, which has kind of been headed as being uh, a series about joy, one of the truths that we were talking about here is that there should be joy in our relationships, even when it is difficult. And the way that we kind of find Jesus's joy, I shouldn't say find, that's probably an inaccurate way of saying it. What I would say is activate it because we've been very clear here that when we come to Christ and are in Jesus, He puts his joy in us. So this is not something we necessarily even have to strive for as much as it is a posture of our hearts that we have to experience and live in. To to live in that, it is important that we embrace the mind of Jesus. That's what Paul tells us here. So we've kind of had this tagline here where we're going back and forth by saying to find yourself in the Christian faith, you, you really have to lose yourself. You have to become less of you and more of Jesus. And so Philippians 2, 1 through 5 is this incredible challenge where Paul, he's, he's, telling us to to grapple with the weighty reality that our relationships on earth are meant to mirror the relationship and love that Jesus has for his people and the world. So last week we spoke about how the foundation upon which Christ honoring relationship and unity is built, it's a commitment that we call covenant. We will not spend a lot of time here today, so if you didn't hear that talk, it's really beneficial for you. But uh, simply defined, it's the commitment to be something for another person when they do not reciprocate it. And we contrasted that with contractual love, uh, the commitment to be something for another person so long as they actually make a commitment to you. It's a trading of good and services as opposed to the kind of love that we see in Jesus who provides for us and cares for us and serves us even in the moments where we do none of that and reciprocate it towards him. And so we said that it was not always easy to live under covenantal love, but it is beneficial for a number of reasons. It's healthy for our soul. It's healthy for our relationships, but it also begins to identify us with the very nature of who Jesus is. And so what happens here is in in similar ways when we talk about suffering a little more detail down the road, um, Paul will say, like, I consider it joy to suffer. Because it makes me like Jesus, and so he's able to see these circumstances in his life and he's able to appreciate them I 'm not saying that he necessarily likes them, but he's able to appreciate them because he knows in suffering or in the absence of joy or when we are challenged in life and when we talk about serving others even when we 're not served, it makes us like Jesus. we start to connect with the, the spiritual, physical and emotional reality of who Christ is, and that's important because Jesus lives in you so to to kind of tap into the power of Jesus in your life is is a very powerful and realistic promise that Paul makes to us and is making throughout this whole book. And so today we're going to look at what are perhaps the three biggest challenges that a person will face when trying to value others as Paul commands us to do here. We've talked a lot about this on the proactive side. Now I want to talk about some of the, the issues that might actually keep us from from embracing Uh, heart deep, these types of behavior. And so that's how the structure will be a little different this morning. We'll just dialogue about each idea, and then we'll wrap up. So to kind of intro this, the three most common challenges a person will face when trying to value others as themselves, it typically expresses themselves in, in three ways. Now, there are certainly more than this, but these are like the three alpha dogs, and you can probably connect every ancillary relationship objection to one of these ideas, all right? So the first is this. If you want to have meaningful relationships, if you want to have joy in relationship, if you want to be able to love and serve others even when you're not served, then you have to know that perhaps the greatest issue uh, when it comes to embracing these things and experiencing the benefits of them is that you have no desire to have any meaningful relationships at all in your life. This is kind of a, an obvious one, right? If you don't really desire a meaningful relationship, which we will talk about in a moment, you certainly will not be able to press into what Paul tells us to do here. And so uh, this is a common and growing issue for a person to have in the Christian faith. And if you are a Christian and you feel this way, uh, I'm not saying like you dabble in this. We'll touch on that here, too. We all have moments where we don't want this, but I'm saying like if this is kind of a normative rhythm, then it's super important to recognize right out of the gate that uh, we're stepping out of God's original and assumed path for our lives uh, and that fact for all of humanity, whether you are for Jesus or against him or somewhere in that middle ground between those two poles, this is the way God has designed humanity to function in meaningful relationship. And so early on in this series, we said that God's normative plan for all of mankind is to be in relationship or community with each other. That's why it's one of our values as a church. Authentic relationship, authentic community is one of the bedrocks of who we are as a body. And the reasons and at times even excuses that are given for people not wanting to be in meaningful relationships or to give oneself away to another, they're pretty diverse. They usually have lots of different expressions. However, you can almost always guarantee that they will be cloaked in some form of Christian immaturity or at times of a foe or an idealistic spirituality. Let me explain. And here's why avoiding this attitude is important. Uh, Think about this. Relationships, right? Even in the Christian faith, if you don't want to have meaningful relationships with other people, both loving God and not loving God, um, there's already a contradiction in that. Because the foundation of our faith is this primary relationship we have with Jesus. It's Jesus dying for us so that we can know him, right? So to want that type of relationship but then to not want it with other people is already a problem relationships are in large part one of the main ways that god makes us more like him he doesn't do this in a vacuum they are a literal catalyst for our journey to become more like jesus to embrace the mind of jesus you've got to be in him and around people trying to embrace the mind of jesus by the way i heard one amen i'd like at least 10 today because i thought that was worth like seven amens just not after every word because i got to get through this all right Uh, think about this in an unparalleled way we get to work out life and faith, right? We get to uh, celebrate successes. We get to weep with each other when life is challenging, when we struggle. In, in meaningful relationships, we get to be this for the people while other people are being this for us. And the truth here is, in, in a talk or a series like this, we're hearing this and probably digesting a lot of this as far as who God is and what we should do, and that's important. But I want you to think about this. In this room, there are many more people than just you. And so as we embrace this rhythm, If other people are listening to what Paul is saying, then what should happen here is that as as we are trying to be this for other people, um, other people will have just as great a concern in loving and supporting you on your Christian journey, right? So this is not happening, even this idea, in a vacuum, uh, a spiritual vacuum. A meaningful relationship in our lives is an incubator for humility. It's an incubator for growth. Because let's be honest, I want you to take a moment and think about the most substantial relationships you have in your life. Whether it is a husband or a wife, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, family, loved ones, whatever. In those tight-knit circles, people have the freedom to speak into our lives and challenge us in areas of our lives that no other people really can. Like you wouldn't expect the, you know, you're kind of walking into Walmart and you uh, got your... Buggy full of groceries and you check out and the lady's like, I really would like to speak to you about your lack of humility, right? That doesn't happen to the checkout lady to the, in the Walmart uh, line. Although most of us are probably challenged in our humility at Walmart because when I go in there, like veins pop out of my head because there are lines everywhere and people are mean. But the, the truth here is like those ancillary relationships, that doesn't happen, right? People do not do that to you. However, and the people that you are with the people you're closest with, that actually does happen or it should happen because they know you well. And they have the right to speak that way to you because they are in your lives in a meaningful way. As well as a responsibility we have is to speak that way to other people that are in our lives when there is meaningful relationship. They become objective checks and balances that help us to understand who we are and who we are not yet in Jesus. So this is how God designs life to happen. And if you are a Christian or you know a Christian who feels they have no need for meaningful relationship, which is a particularly acute problem in the Western world, we talked about this a couple of months ago, we live in a world that values individual spirituality. uh, And for those who are in Jesus, this is not an individual's game. It has an element of that, but there is a communal or a plurality in our relationship. There's reasons for the reason that people embrace this idea. So for some people, it's because they do just use it as an excuse to not grow up and into the image of Jesus. And we think about this, just kind of logically, it is much easier to live in ways that are out of step with the rhythms of Jesus, contrary to his ways, when you are not around other people who are trying to live in love as Jesus did. When you're in that vacuum, you really can become the God of your own faith, and you can start proactively embracing um, ways of thinking, believing, feeling, and practicing the faith that don't even honor God. Here's another side of the fence. Some people, um, this might be a a more noble excuse, but I still think it's a problematic one. Some people will have no desire to be in meaningful relationship in their lives because they feel it's just too risky uh, to be open and vulnerable with another person. So unlike this other person who says, just stay out of my way, I don't need you in my life. This person is saying, you know, um, I maybe even would want to do this, but I know that when I start getting in people's lives and they get in mine, it's going to be risky and I might get hurt. So some time ago, I read an interesting quote from C.S. Lewis, it'll be behind me here in a moment, uh, addressing this issue. I'd never heard it kind of articulated this way, but it's pretty powerful. And listen to what he says about those who avoid meaningful relationship for this reason, because there's a fear to get hurt, and the result that it produces over time. It'll be behind me. He says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Right out the gate, he's saying, listen— Uh, Love is a risky venture. Relationship is a a risky venture. And at some point, even in the healthiest of relationships, you're going to get hurt. He says, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless coffin, it will change. It will not be broken. In other words, you're protected from that. It will become unbreakable, your heart will, impenetrable and irredeemable. This is profound, I think. The only place outside of heaven you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell, where nobody gives their heart to anybody. And so in his worldview, which I think is a very scriptural one, what he's saying is the absence of this relationship begins to embody the antithesis of who God is. It's almost, it's almost like we are choosing to dwell in what God says the worst punishment on earth is, separation from him and other people. That's what we say is the normative MO for the Christian on earth. And I want you to sit on that for a minute because there's a deep contradiction in it. Now, it's a pretty powerful statement. And my hope today is that if you don't want to be in meaningful relationship with other people— that you'll have an honest conversation with God about whether or not your heart has migrated into some unhealthy form of relational uh, selfishness. And certainly, as I said last week, this is also a protection for our lives, for those that we do care about. You know, I, I don't think that—there's I, I, no thinking here. I would not want my son dating a, a girl like this or my daughters being dated by a young man like this. This would be a red flag for me as a dad. And red flags typically are the equivalent of baseball bats and threats. That's the way that it works, right? So this is a problem. So if you have some of these tensions or sense them, ask God for the wisdom to sort the why in this. God's concerned with the why's. He's not just about the do's. He's also concerned about helping our hearts to understand why this matters. Ask him why you don't want meaningful relationships, God-honoring relationships in your life, because it is one of the evidences of a person who has experienced a meaningful relationship with Jesus. Now, before we move into the second idea, I, I want to say one more thing about this. Uh, there's a really tricky part to this objection that we have got to talk about. It's the one that I think trips people up because a lot of people will say that, that they have relationship or even meaningful relationship. So it's important, I think, that we quantify this here. So when speaking about relationships, we have to know that it is entirely possible for a person to have lots of relationships in their life without them being the meaningful relationships Jesus and Paul talks about here. There is a difference between having a lot of friends and having this, okay? So this is the person who has tons of friends, but not necessarily, in in the Christian vernacular, we would say brothers and sisters in Jesus, right? Those fellow uh, men and women who are laboring for God and trying to sort their life out. They don't have... Depth or maturity in that. Their relationships are built on a foundation that might be less or that is much less substantive than the one that Paul talks about here. What a one that is much less substantive than the one we experience from Jesus. And here are two very common examples of what a person's life looks like when they have a lot of relationships without the meaningful part. The first is that you practice individualistic Christianity. And what I mean by this is you have minimal, if any, meaningful relationships. With others who follow Jesus. And this is frankly by design. So there's a lot of contact, right? But there's there's a design system that says contact to the point where I will never permit you to be close enough to speak into my life or me into yours in a way that helps you grow in Jesus. And so in this person's life, faith becomes a completely privatized venture. And the impetus to act this way is usually driven by either believing that you are too good to be in relationship with another person like that. This is super common. This is the road of the Pharisee. Where people, they personally think that they arrive to some level of spiritual maturity. And the only other people they can be around are other people that they think are spiritually mature. They don't spend the time in the mess or the muck. And then what happens is, is these two people get together and they affirm how great they are. All the while really not being uh, intimately connected at all. They're in love with what they think their morality before God is. Not necessarily the kind of humble love that, that Paul talks about here. They think that they are too good to be in relationship with other people. If anybody at all. And for example... Um, they believe that to be around people who might not be where they're at, it's frustrating. It's going to compromise who they are. They might subliminally feel that to be in a relationship with another person like that, actually, it actually puts them in a place of just constantly having to remind themselves of how great this person is and how, how faulty they are, and that's just wrong. That's, and we know that because if we go back to Jesus, he is the greatest ever. And he could look at us like this all the time, but he does not. He sees in us, and this is why I'm very uh, particular with my words, he sees in us what we are yet to become not what we are not. I mean, there certainly is an element of both of those here, but the road of sanctification means that Jesus looks at us and he sees what we can be, and he labors in our lives to bring that about. That's how we should have relationship with others that might really truly not be mature in God or even pursuing that. There's, there's another side to this where sometimes the isolationist is not thinking that they're on the high ground. They're actually like what we would call the younger brother in that parable, right? The one that Jesus gives us about the two ways that people follow God. One thinks God loves me because I'm great. The other thinks I'm just going to run away from God and take advantage of him. And, and I can basically abuse God all that I want because grace is grace and it's cheap. Sometimes the Christian isolationist is running from godliness to godlessness, and it's much easier to get on that road without meaningful relationships. When there's nobody to talk to you or hold you back or challenge that, you, know, you, you wall off life and then you just drift away into whatever you decide to do. So it's a challenge to have uh, friendships that are broad but maybe not necessarily uh, meaningful. Okay? The, the road of isolation. The other one, which I think might even be more prevalent than this one, is that you're in many relationships, but uh, they do not reflect Jesus' values for, for relationships. So you've got a lot of friends But when you start looking at the way that Jesus speaks of relationship or Paul here, that stuff is not in them. You've got a broad network of friends that are relationally an inch deep. And this is also a very common issue today. And it is deeply linked to a serious theological misunderstanding of what Christian community is. So this is the person um, who thinks that God has given the word relationships so that you and I just never get bored. That's like the cosmic end of God on the cross was that you will always have something to do on a Tuesday night. They believe Jesus' crowning achievement is not necessarily redemption, but uh, it creates this loose social network of Christians uh, who guarantee that they'll never be bored in life, and they will always have something to do with each other. And there's a deep irony in this way of believing, because from the outside looking in, it really looks like this type of person uh, has their life together. It looks like they're a modern-day socialite for Jesus. However, the substance of what those friendships are built on, it's tenuous at best. So these types of relationships are usually bound together by something far less than the eternal unity of Jesus. If you think like friendship in this sense is all that Jesus was caring about when he created community, then that naturally becomes the chief aim of what you try to build in community. And it starts to undermine this kind of eternal unity and presence that Jesus says defines his people. What Paul talks about here and uses Christ's life as an example for it. What happens is you're not bound by, by Christ You're bound by appearance. You're bound by age, by race, by lifestyle, by preference, by affinity, by whether or not you're in college or not, a young professional or not, you've got friends or family or kids or not. These become the things that are the most important to build the relationship on. And while those things can be good things to start a relationship with, none of this is inherently wrong. If it becomes the ultimate thing your relationships are built on, then there is a problem. Because you are now functioning in what we said last week, relational contract. I will be friends with you so long as we look alike or act alike or have the same hobbies or never disagree about things or we're in the same season of life. The problem with this is that your relationship will only be as good as your interests, your lifestyle, your preferences, your appearances, your affinities with that person. When those things change because there is no substance in the relationship, the relationship ends remove the affinity and now there is an irreconcilable difference. What Jesus says is remove the affinity and I'm still there. I am the affinity that binds. And my affinity goes much deeper than your preference. He says, it, my, my affinity says you've got to learn to love even when somebody is unlovable. And I, I want to give you a practical example of what this looks like. This is kind of a it's a true story, but it's an ambiguous story of something that happened to me in New Orleans, and it is indicative of – I would almost say it's an archetype story. So you can swap out the details and put different faces and places here, but the root of this is super common. Okay? So many, many years ago, I was asked to meet with somebody. It was one of those like phone call appointments. And I uh, was kind of taken out to talk about a concern that a person had had with another friend's marriage. Close friends. This is what they kept using, the language. And I use the word close very loosely here. So after talking to the person for a bit, they kept reiterating that they felt something was not entirely right about their friend's marriage. They were observing things that they were concerned about. And so we just did what I always do. We started talking through the concerns and tried to validate what could or could not be a real issue. And in a situation like this, it is always my desire uh, to equip the person to to then raise these concerns with his friend because in this situation – I'm like barely a loose acquaintance here, and this person is a close friend, right? And so this is when things get weird. When we move away from talking about the situation and then equipping a person to deal with the situation, the conversation got got a little funky, often gets a little funky. Even though this person claims to be deeply concerned with the evidence struggles, right, that they have perceived in a close friend's marriage— um, I was told when saying, we've got to get you ready to deal with this now, that there was no way they were going to bring these things up with this close friend. And I pushed back on that statement really, really hard because it is exactly what we're talking about here. The, you know, this person sitting in front of me saying, listen, um, I want to tell you about this, but ultimately I'm not going to say any of this to my friend because this is just their business. And I thought the the illogical nature of that statement was profound, so I addressed it. I said, that doesn't make any sense because if this isn't your business, uh, then why why are you bringing it up to me? me?" Like It's somebody's business. That's what's happening here. It's somebody's business, right, and we just got to figure out whose it is. And all the while this is happening, there's stress in a marriage. And so he goes on to tell me that he brought this to me, to my attention, because he expected as a pastor I would just go talk with a couple. Which, let me tell you, they didn't even have to teach me this in seminary. Um, If you ever think that it's going to work out well, that you go to people you barely know and talk to them about the most significant relationship they have in life, it never works out well that they take that well. They're not like... Oh, you know, this just happened at Walmart with the cashier the other day about my marriage. And I really received that. And we went on the canned food aisle and talked about that for two hours. People are like, what are you doing getting in my business? And to a certain degree, there is something right about that. Because in that dynamic, I'm not in somebody's life the way we're talking about here. And so this is obviously me being incredibly sarcastic to aim at, at a truth point. The sad thing in this is that it never got brought up. And so, like I said, this is a perfect example of lots of friends, but a questionable nature of how meaningful the friendship is. Thank you. <laughs> and so, the, the amen, I'm just going to say it. The, bo- the bottom line in this, right, is this. Christianity is a team sport, and you are running the wrong play if you think that this type of person, this archetype, this, this objection, no meaningful relationship is, is a good thing. The vast majority of teachings in the New Testament Talk about key pronoun, how we grow in Jesus. I'm going to say it again, how we grow in Jesus. So remember that because if there is no we in the relationship with us and Jesus and us and others, we are never going to have meaningful relationships. You just can't. I said like two months ago, you, if you're more concerned with the me as opposed to the we, then what happens is you never build this rhythm. And you increase the chance of learning to follow a God who is not the God of our scripture. So it's super important to recognize meaningful relationship matters, okay? These next two challenges I want to talk about, they, they talk about uh, the, some of the nitty-gritty of what happens when we are in relationships. So let's just say this is not your issue. This is where the second idea comes up. You are in relationship. You value meaningful relationship, but you're in relationship to get something, um, but you don't want to be something for the other person. So what's happening here is this is a one-sided contract. I gave the example of the theater last year. This is me saying, as much as I wish this was true, we're going to be here for free. And they're going to say, uh, no, you're not. Yeah, get out now. That's how the way it works. One-sided contract, right? The challenge of this, it strikes at the heart of what Paul calls selfish am- ambition. This is kind of the root example of this. It's what happens when you're just willing and able and desiring to step on other people to progress your own life. So if you've ever been around a person like this, the the character traits are undeniable. Uh, This is a person who has the uncanny ability. It does not matter where you start a conversation. It could be about things going on on the western coast of Africa. But at the end of a conversation, it will always be all about them. They have the unique ability to take whatever you say and then internalize it and, and make them the chief aim of what you're discussing. This is the person who is only around when there's something to get. Uh, they, they offer them something and they'll be by your side, but ask them for something and they just won't pick their phone up or respond to a text. This is the person who, in a conversation, only cares to mention what is going on in their life. You could talk to them for half an hour and they will never say, how are you doing? What is your life like? How is how are you, how's your family? How are your children at? How's your mom? Is she still sick? They don't even ask those questions because they've never taken the time to ask about what you deal with or struggle with. It is the chief example of a one-way ticket to self-ville, self-preservation, like we talked about a few weeks ago. And when left unchecked, this person becomes an expert in using relationships to manipulate others to get what they want out of life. This is where the selfish ambition piece comes into play. And I wish there was an easy fix for this detrimental heart attitude, but the truth is there isn't. Because a person who has gotten to this place in life has allowed an incredibly unhealthy root to take hold of their heart. You don't start out this way necessarily. And the longer you let that root deepen into your heart, the more it becomes the way you think you have to act. And then what happens is you start to live in ways that are very far from the heart of Jesus. That's why pulling this root is going to take work. And the foundational work that takes place here is some kind of recognition. If you are in Jesus particularly... Some kind of recognition that violating God's foundational rule of God's design for all relationship is a problem. And even if you are not in a relationship, uh, in Jesus, let's just say you're here and you're questioning faith or you have friends that are not Christians, whatever. Sanity says that remove God from the picture and the wisdom still stands. None of us would be okay with somebody treating us like this. We would say there's something really wrong where every time I'm around you, I'm abused or taken advantage of, right? It's a biblical principle that spans Both those in and outside of Jesus, but for now I want to talk about why this is so problematic for those in Jesus. Um, When a person gets to this place, it's screaming that you're you're living your life to serve yourself. When God says the point of relationship, in large part, it's not to devalue yourself; it's to value others as yourself. To make it a real priority to consider serving the needs of another first. And so to a certain degree, we all struggle with this attitude. I'm not talking about some idealism here. There are times when all of us do not want to do something for another person or be something for another person, or we want to take the easy road. I'm not saying this is not something we deal with or struggle with. I am saying, though, there is a difference between struggling with this and a person who actually is this. One is dealing with trying to overcome it. The other suffers from a relational sickness. They live to take. and That is wrong. And so whether you or someone in your life suffers from this, no matter what degree it's to, you have to know that moving away from this hard attitude requires a real recognition of it in our lives. It requires us to confess to God that there is a weed in our heart that is very hard to pull. And if you don't recognize and confess it, what happens is we're likely going to have some hard days ahead of us because an unrepentant heart in this matter means you're choosing an imbalanced type of relationship, a contractual love that won't last Relationships cannot last under this because this is not love. It's self-preservation. And anybody with a grain of wisdom in their head is going to sense that and say, I gotta get out of this because you are hurting me a lot. I want to be here for you, but I need boundaries now. Because it's crazy. At some point, this stress fracture creates a crack that will break every relationship you're in, or breaks you if you are in it on the other side, the receiving end. On the other side of the fence. A person, uh, you know, they're going to be totally unwise to let this type of person uh, continually take advantage of them. I, when we talk about these types of selflessness teachings, there's a difference between forget, forgiving and then, uh, and then using wisdom. These two things go together. You can forgive somebody, create boundaries with a person, but also use wisdom to not be in a situation again where you are hurt or taken advantage of. Contrary to belief, these are not contradictory ideas in Scripture. God desires and wants us to be wise and tells us if we pray for this, he will give us wisdom. So in our relationships, we need wisdom. So if you're in this spot, um, please take heart and know that there is help in this. I don't want this to sound like, uh, you know, judgment or arrogance. I just want you to know if you're struggling with this internally or you're in this position, you're in the receiving end of it, there is hope in this and there is help in this. So seek counsel as to why why the hardness exists in you and make a course correction, or if it is being done to you and you just are perpetually putting yourself in a situation to be taken advantage of like this, it might be worth asking why your heart is tuned into that being an okay way to be treated. Neither are God's desire for your life. And so what is that two-word statement I just glossed over? Correction? What is the course correction here? What is something we can begin proactively doing? Well, I'll tell you, I think this is, the answer to this is the same every time. Uh, it's the relational inoculation we call the one another as it's a teaching we talk about regularly here. And the foundation of what these, these verses teach us in the scripture is that we should be as focused and at times more focused on being something for another person rather than expecting another person to be something uh, for us. Reading them, which we'll do here in a moment, reading them is one thing. Reading them as sort of a confession, meaning you're, you're reading them, asking God to make them a reality in your life and in your heart is an entirely other thing. I can say love one another, right? I can say that and read that, but it's different to say, Father, help me to love one another. One is a declaration of information. The other is a proclamation that says, God, make this real in my life. That's what, these are, that's what the one another's are. And this is what I recommend doing with them. Read them as a confession. For this next moment, though, However you focus, close your eyes, concentrate, whatever it is, I want you to listen to these words. I'm just going to read them, and I want you to process them. Meditate on the list of one another given to us from Scripture. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Greet one another. Agree with one another. Serve one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, with hymns and spiritual songs. Here's a tough one. Submit to one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily, not just on occasion, but every day, it says. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, meaningful relationship. Offer hospitality to one another, a key statement without grumbling. That's an interesting one. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. I end with that one another because humility in Scripture, it's, it's likened to like the clothes on your back. You just get up and put that on every day, right? It is that natural. You would not leave the house without it unless you want to get arrested, right? So the point here is that in the faith, this should be as natural to us. We should be striving for humility and grace to be as natural to us as putting clothes on is. And these teachings show us that there is a code of conduct God desires for us to have. There is a theology in the Bible of relationship, and particularly in the church, ecclesiology, I've said it before. Philippians 2 is teaching us how to be present in other people's lives and what to look for in meaningful relationships in the people that are in our lives. Because as we said at the outset of this talk, the way we embody these things reveals the love of Jesus to us, certainly each other, and our world. And this truth is not new. You can see it all through the Old Testament, but you can see it explicitly at the foot of the cross. The root of this takes place in Jesus' life where God, uh, he builds this covenant, the, the idea of the church and his people. This thing that we're talking about, this one another love, it happens while Jesus is being crucified. And I'm going to read to you John 19:26 through 27 to show you how. Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother there, he was not in the coffee shop. He was not down by the lake or the sea. He's on the cross. And he is on the cross, and he notices his mother When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, not get me off the cross, make this stop. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so think about this. The way Jesus cares for his mother while being crucified, it births the one another love we're talking about here. In these moving verses, Jesus shows us that while he literally has the weight of the world's needs and sins on his shoulders, he is still selflessly thinking about the needs of others. You want to know why Paul is having a terrible time in a prison cell in Philippians 1, but he finds the strength to write us a letter to encourage us? Because he gets this. Because he is meditating on these realities. Life is going to be hard, but it does not exempt us from caring for others when it is. In fact, that can perpetuate an attitude where we live in a a victimization mentality where life is always hard and then we can never be anything great for god in this case he is thinking about his mom while he is dying and it's interesting that even though you know the bible tells us he's got biological brothers in john 7 we know he's got other brothers here he leaves his mom not in the care of flesh and blood in the care of of spiritual blood and the reason is an obvious one because his younger brothers reject it we know that but his beloved disciple does not And he puts his mom in a relationship. He says, listen, you guys got to take care of each other now. Love one another because I'm not going to be here to do this anymore like this anyways. So this act shows us two important things. Um, The first is, it's just a concrete validation of God's promise on the cross. Like what he says is going to happen, it happens. And it doesn't just happen in a prediction. It happens because he's making it happen. He promises that he's going to make a new family on earth. And that family is called the church. Church. And it is a family that is bound by something much stronger than the trivial nature of names, of race, of preference, of affinity, of creed, or of status. Jesus on the cross dawns a new era. This is not coincidental that this happens. It's an era that takes an incredibly diverse group of people, all made in God's image, all over the earth, and he forms a bond so deep in them because of him, not affinity, not because of contract because of covenant he he creates a bond in them so deep that they are now past present and future the family of God the brothers and sisters in Jesus we we are unified body of Christ and that's why we declare this when we take communion when we read the Apostles Creed we are in the pedigree of a long and big family and there will be people that follow us it's a new family that's the rhythm we press into secondly you can see that this idea Paul talks about is not an afterthought or a footnote in the faith From the inception of New Testament Christianity, the reason we're here, we were meant to value others as much as we value ourselves. This is one of the ingredients in the concrete foundation of God's kingdom on earth in the New Testament world. Jesus' actions show us the, the foundational responsibilities of the Christian life, which consequently become a catalyst for growth. It is to deeply care for the people God has placed in your life, even when it is not convenient. So remember, if you're in relationship only to get something, I mean, frankly, we're missing the mark of who God wants us to be. And I want to take this a step further because I think it's really true. And I think there's a ton of relational evidence in the Bible to support it. You're likely missing the presence of Jesus. I want to say that again. If you are in relationship only to get something, you are certainly missing the mark of who God wants us to be. But if, And if we're not embracing the mind of Jesus, we're beginning to miss the presence of Jesus in that area of our lives. We are, we are becoming more like ourselves to become more like ourselves. We're finding ourselves in ourselves, not in Jesus. Last one that I want to talk about today. This is the other side of this coin. Um, so we've talked about meaningful relationship. We've talked about what it means to be in a relationship when, when you want to just take. And now we're going to talk about what it means when you value meaningful relationship And you're in a relationship with another person who doesn't want to value you. This is when you're in the abuse zone, okay? Uh, This is Jesus on the cross, like perfect example. dies for the world, and they kill him. So uh, the issue here is there's lots of examples in Scripture, and I want to start with a a bird's-eye view of this. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians um, regarding the difficult reality of having a husband or a wife who isn't a Christian. Or you're in a meaningful relationship, maritally speaking, uh, where somebody is a believer and then they just start to act like they're not one, okay? This is, again, a pretty substantial relationship. And um, like the other issues we've talked about over these weeks and today, um, this is going to be a challenging one because this is where the covenantal nature of your relationship is, is going to be tested. And so while Paul's teaching in Corinthians is directed at marriage, it has a strong application to all of our relationships. The, the principles in this can be applied to anything. So think of it that way, whether, no matter where you fall in the spectrum. Uh, in this situation, Scripture is pretty clear. Um, God wants us to be in relationships with people who are very far from him, no matter what that looks like. I'll issue a, a small caveat here. Maybe I shouldn't say small. Maybe it's a big one. Uh, you need to keep in the back of your minds as we go through this that if ever you find yourself in a relationship where you are being like physically or spiritually or emotionally abused, this begins to change the dynamic of what we're talking about here. But even in this, we want to be careful because there are people who go to parts of the world uh, where they know that they are risking their lives to be present, present for the gospel. So there is a tension in this. There is, there is danger and challenge in what I'm going to talk about, and there is a need for wisdom, especially in private relationship, which is why one of the things we'll talk about here in a moment is that it's important to seek counsel in this. But nonetheless, I just want to say, just because a relationship is risky or hard does not mean God does not want you in it. In fact, most of the time what we see, even in Corinthians, is, is a challenge to stay relationally engaged with the person. They're not hurting you. Obviously, this situation is a complex issue with a virtually unlimited set of circumstances that can arise out of it. Like you can be in a relationship with somebody who does not believe in God, could care less about Christ, but they love you. Okay? This is kind of like my family. Um, I'm the only Christian in not my family, like, my, like the one that I made, but the one that I was made by. Like my family doesn't care for any of this. And there was a season where they were very hostile, very, very, very hostile towards it. Um, when I moved to New Orleans, I borderline got disowned when I went to school. And now they're like at a place where they're like, you know what? You don't sell drugs. That's good. You pastor a church. That's better. That's like where they're at. It's a it's the scale of life. They're like, you could have sold drugs, but it's better this way, right? And I'm okay with that. I feel like that is them valuing what I do. So I'm good with it, right? So it, it, that's what I'm saying is it was hard, but I feel like there's been progress, slow and painful at times, but progress there. So It could be a relationship like that. It could be where somebody is just supportive of your faith, but they don't want it. It could be where um, they they are indifferent, like apathetic, or it could be like they're just straight up hostile. That happens. Where people, they live to get in your craw, right? So the the point in all of this is that it's God's desire that you don't just automatically eject from this stuff. You weigh with wisdom and counsel what to do. Uh, You are supposed to be, I am supposed to be, in a relationship with people very different from whom I am. Uh, providing there are no systemic abuses. So if the latter becomes the case, like if you're being physically abused, then we must use God's wisdom to determine our next steps because God does not want that for you. So please hear me here. Uh, This is a complicated issue that requires you to seek outside objective counsel from someone with a good track record of being wise before you do anything. And here is why. The stakes are too high. You do not want to prematurely sever a relationship because you're frustrated. I mean, think about this. If Jesus did that, this would be a very different talk I'm giving right now. You also don't want to linger in one where there is a real danger to you. And if ever you begin to feel that you lack the clarity in this, speak to people who care about you and who have God's best for your life in their mind. And so while Paul explicitly writes about this from the marital context in 1 Corinthians, his teaching is not limited to the marital context. All of us likely have relationships like this in life right now. Um, And if not and you are on Jesus' mission, then you will. What I'm saying is, is you should have relationships in your life right now. If every relationship you have is safe and comfortable around people who think, act, and look just like you, it is worth asking whether or not you are truly laboring in parts of your life, your life that God has created for you providentially to, to be a platform for his gospel. He's put you there for a reason, to be around people that are not in him. And So with this in mind, there are a few things you can do immediately if you find yourself in a situation like this. This is how we'll wrap up. Uh, The first is an obvious one, but it's an often neglected one. You've got to start praying for the relationship. Listen, you cannot change somebody. I cannot change somebody. And if we've been in Jesus long enough, we know it is near impossible. We might have like a Tuesday morning where we're doing all right, but we really can't even change ourselves most days. And that's okay. There's no judgment in that. This is why God says, don't do this by yourself. I am here. I am the greatest agent of change. Start talking to God about the relationship. Because doing so invites God into the situation. Remember in our Nehemiah study, I said you cannot build the kingdom of God without the king. This is just a spiritual reality of that. Invite God into the situation and allow him to soften a hard heart in that person. You've got to pray for that person's heart to soften. All the while asking God to help you not develop a hardness of heart towards that person. You're not just praying for them. You're praying for you too. Because if you do not, what happens is you, you will probably make matters worse. When you start to take the high road in a situation like that, um, what happens is you might start being judgmental towards a person. You might start expecting them to behave like Jesus when they don't even believe in him or trust in him. Praying for people has the tendency to give you a greater understanding, burden, and love for them. So pray that God would begin to write this one another love on their heart and yours. Let God be the agent of change. You, You take that on yourself, you're going to be a very angry person. You might eject prematurely. Secondly, You have to make sure your every action is defined by love and service to the person. If you are in a relationship to try to get somebody to change, they're going to pick up on that in the same way you would. There is a reality of trying to be altruistically who Jesus is. I mean, look at what he does. He is before people, he lays it out, and then he calls them to respond. You never have an example in one of the Gospels where Jesus has got somebody in a chokehold making them believe in him, right? He doesn't do that. Maybe we would follow more if he did, right? Here, what happens is there is this opportunity. He puts it out there and, and there's relationship and love connected to it. But the onus of response is the, on the person. So if you pull the pin on the relationship hand grenade, if you start to try to change somebody, you'll be judgmental. You'll be angry. You might even be demeaning towards another person. Uh, what happens is you drift towards contractual love that worsens things. You will say, unless you change, I'm not going to be around you. That's not, uh, that's not covenantal love. And the reason I say this dogmatically is because to think about the way we treat other people when they are not reciprocating love to us, we have to think about the way we treat Jesus when and He treats us. Um, we are a byproduct of covenantal love. Jesus has loved us when we were far from Him. He loves us when we are not faithful to Him. He pursues us when we do not pursue Him. He has chosen to love us. Romans says, in my own paraphrase, while we were unfaithful and unruly. So we cannot. Experience that grace and then withhold it from another person. In in light of this, what Jesus says is you've got to show that same type of love, or at least strive for it, in the relationships you have with other people. Otherwise, it is a Christian contradiction of the highest sorts. I'm good with grace, just not giving it to anybody. And in the uh, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus literally says that that calls into question salvation. He says, "Listen, if you can get grace, but you can't pass it on." you got to start asking some questions about whether or not you really know what grace is. The last thing here, and I'll repeat it because it's important, is seek the counsel of those uh, that you trust. A pastor, me, a CG leader, an elder, a fellow congregant who has a good track record of walking with God, somebody you trust. This situation is like walking a tightrope. Do not go it alone. You let the combined wisdom of people, past, present, who have dealt with this and counseled it and likely have been involved in it in their own lives there are people who have walked before you down this road. Let them be present with you in your life as you deal with it. This is why we started out with saying you got to want a meaningful relationship. If you don't have people that care about you or you about them. You don't even get to this point. You deal with this in isolation. So listen, no matter where you find yourself in this talk this morning, I want you to take heart for this reason. This to me is, I think, if there's ever an application in this about how this matters to life, let it be this one. Think about uh, you've heard a lot from me this morning, but I'm trying to expound on what Paul has said, and Paul's expounding upon what Jesus has said. We all celebrate Paul as a guy who is like just loving and caring and selfless and changing the world for Jesus in the Scripture, right? He's the guy giving us an instruction on covenantal relationship. He's telling us how to deal with hard hearts. But I want you to remember the guy that was called Saul before Paul. This is a guy who other people at one point in his life were asking questions about. This guy, the, the guy, the people were talking about here, all these negative rhythms, this was Paul. He was the guy that you could not be around. He was the guy that would execute you if he found out you believed in Jesus. He was a person who, I mean, literally, when the people find out that Paul, Saul becomes Paul and he tries to talk to Christians in the first century world, there are stories in the Bible where people are running from him. They think it's some coup to kind of gather Christians and execute them because that was going on, and Paul was spearheading a lot of that. This is a guy who was not any of this. He had no interest at all in living for Jesus or for you and me. Yet God has an interest in Paul living for his son and for you and me. The redemptive power of Paul's change is not him. It is God in him. So do not take this pressure on yourself. Let God carry the weight. That's his job, not yours. And there is immediate evidence of this right here. And in our own lives, all of us have changed stories. Know that your God is able to save He is able to redeem. He is able to restore. He is able to change the heart, no matter how hard or distant it is from him, whether it is your own or the heart of another. So do not doubt God on this. I would encourage you to rest in him and let him do the heavy lifting of changing the human heart from contractual to covenantal love. Because in doing so, you are going to find that your relationships, when they honor God, they will deeply satisfy you. They will honor God and they will create a satisfaction in you even when they are not ideal Or perfect, which is the majority of the way most of our relationships are in life, almost all the time. So as we close, ask yourself, when it comes to relationship and contractual or covenantal love, when it comes to the things we've talked about today, no relationship, in it to get something at the expense of another, selfish ambition, or you are loving someone and they are just straight up taking advantage of you. No matter where you are in life, ask yourself, how do you understand relationship? What is Jesus saying to you and what are you going to do about it? pray with me father in heaven thank you for thank you for not just a teaching on relationship but the fact that the ultimate example of relationship was sent to earth you didn't just give us stories about how to love you gave us your son to show us how to be loved and i pray lord that that would be the guiding reality of our lives and everything that we say and do may the profound truth of jesus in us, shape how we are Jesus for others. And may you give us immeasurable clarity and wisdom and how to be in relationship with another person and how to function in a relationship for another person. I pray, Lord, that we would find a good balance in our lives of, of, of valuing others as much as we value self. May we never have that scale and balance. May we never love ourselves more than others or others to the expense where we begin to devalue ourselves, find and strike in our hearts a proper balance of Christ-centered relationship. God, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray now in this time of of contemplation and response that you would just marinate, push these hearts deep into our truths, let them sink into our hearts, God. And may we now live more like you because of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.